0: Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Paddy Tipping, the police and crime commissioner for Nottinghamshire and the former MP for Sherwood. Uh, I should declare an interest at this point. I worked for Paddy when he was the MP for Sherwood. It was the first job I got in politics. I'm very, very grateful that he took a punt on me. He explains why towards the end of this episode. But don't worry, this isn't um, a self-indulgent catch up between two old friends. I was very careful to to not make it that it's a really good political discussion about the role of police and crime commissioners, about the elements of the role that Paddy has defined for himself, and some of the issues that were going on around the time that he was a Labour MP. This was, I was working for him around the time that The UK was voting for military action against Iraq and Paddy was anti-war, but also a very loyal Labour MP. And that put him and others in a very difficult position. And he talks about those conversations, what went on behind the scenes. Sherwood itself, uh, for those of you that know the constituency will know, uh, is a a mixture of quite affluent villages, but also coalfield areas, council estates in the middle of nowhere up near Mansfield, And Labour lost Sherwood in 2010. Now, it's not quite the same as Ashfield and Mansfield when we talk about the so-called Red Wall and those places falling to the Conservatives. Sherwood had been Conservative prior to 1992, but it was a very early warning sign about the direction of travel, so we talk about that as well. Um, Now, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Many of you do. um, And (laughs) just on that... And what's become a bit of a running theme, do let us know if you've ever seen a politician on holiday. Um, Andrew's been in touch uh, and sends to me a very kind email. He says, I'm 17 and I happily spend hours, how sad does this sound, watching YouTube videos of 10-minute rule speeches in the Commons or watching a 15-minute video on the role and function of parliamentary select committees. Andrew, that is not sad at all. Um, I'm not sure it's cool either, but that's exactly the sort of stuff I watched and did watch. I mean, there was a period when I worked in... Public affairs, which is in itself a terrible uh, description of an industry, um, where I would just go and watch parliamentary select committees live in the flesh. And uh, this is really terrible. But towards the (laughs) the longer end of this lockdown, I thought I can't wait to go back to Parliament and just sit in and watch a debate. Which. I'm not sure if that's sadder now than it used to be. But I just thought, oh, I can't wait to go and watch the Select Committee again. So, Andrew, I'm delighted that you enjoy the show. And uh, I'm sure many people listen to this, um, our kindred spirits. But email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And always let us know where you listen. It's good to know where people are. Uh, but this, this episode with Paddy Sipping, I shall not uh, put off anymore. Paddy is a really talented politician. He was a really popular MP, not just in the constituency with the public, and I saw that firsthand, but he was really popular among other MPs, among party staff, which isn't always the way with MPs. And he always took the view that being out there on the doorstep, being accessible, being open to the public um, was a big part of the job. And that's not something that every MP in every party thinks. So um I began by by saying to Paddy a uh, remark, those of you who know who Paddy is will know he's aged very well. but I can't believe already he's been a police and crime commissioner for nine years. I thought uh, the time had flown, um, but I wondered
1: if he had. It hasn't aged me. Uh, I, it's flown by because it's the best thing I've ever done. And uh, people look at me gone out when I said, well, you, I used to sit on cabinet subcommittees. I used to be deputy leader of the House. I used to, one time, a long time back, be you know a key figure on the county council here in Nottinghamshire. But this is the best job I've ever had. And why? Because I can do some stuff. I can't change the world, but I can do some stuff and make people safer. So what can you do? Police numbers are up and crimes down. Uh, Over the past couple of years, we've recruited an extra 260 officers here in Nottinghamshire. The budget for next year starts in April, another 100 officers. 70% of those are on frontline officers. Uh, Neighbourhood policing, which I'm really keen on, rebuilding neighbourhood teams, response, some CID, and uh, crimes going down. Uh, Crimes down... Before the pandemic, during the pandemic, put crimes down 22%, burglary down 25%, car crime down by 28%. And what I'm really proud of is knife crime. Uh, Knife crime's a killer, can be a killer. Uh, Knife crime's still going up nationally and regionally, but here in Nottinghamshire, it's going down. It's down 11%. The force here in Nottingham, surely the only force outside uh, the Met, has got a dedicated knife crime team. And uh, it's not just enforcement. It's working in schools. It's working with the third sector. It's working with parents. You know the QMC here in Nottingham. Uh, If you're a victim of knife crime and go there with an injury, there's a team of youth workers who pick up a discussion there, talk to people about the lifestyle uh, and try and use that moment of crisis uh, to make a difference, make a change. So those are the big headlines, but there's loads of other things that I'm proud of.
0: And how much freedom, how much autonomy do you have as a police cr- and crime commissioner to, to, to depart from government policy? Obviously, you're a Labour police and crime commissioner. Priti Patel is a Conservative Home Secretary. Are you able to get on and have a Labour agenda across Nottinghamshire?
1: Well, what I'm able to do is to have a good discussion with Priti Patel, the Home Secretary. Uh, I, I've been around a bit, Matt. Uh, some people, including you, probably would say he's been around far too long. But uh, as a result of that, I'm now kind of on the an eminent person on the National Policing Board, uh, have regular discussions with the Home Secretary, uh, more frequent discussions with the Policing Minister, Malt House. So I'm involved in uh, putting policy together on a national level. Uh, the thing I've been pushing really hard, as I said earlier on, is rebuilding neighbourhood policing. Look, I mean, you're a Snenton lad yourself. Uh, uh, I, I'm a Snenton lad. Uh, I, I, I live in Upper Snenton in uh, in Bakersfield.
0: Uh, that but- sounds like a state agent. Talk to me. <laughs> Uh, but the Nottingham
1: Riviera. <laughs> I'm trying to put some value on my house, you know. Uh, but uh, it's an interesting place. It's a multicultural place. It's a place where a lot happens, a lot of good there, but it could be improved. And having a strong neighbourhood team uh, that know the area, know the people, know the people to approach, know the people to keep an eye on, really is quite important.
0: And how political is the role Exp- because because it's because you purely concentrate on on crime and policing matters, it feels as if though it's kind of non-ideological. Or have I got that wrong?
1: Uh, I try and work hard with people wherever they're from. So I've got good relationships uh, uh, with MPs of all political parties. Uh, the councils here are of different political hues. You've got to work in partnership with them. Uh, people say. Don't you do what the Labour Party uh, uh, tell you? Let, let me let you into a secret. Nobody, but nobody, has ever rung me up from the Labour Party uh, to tell me what to do. Uh, perhaps I'm not on their list.
0: <laughs> or you're on a different list, maybe.
1: Well, some people call it the S list. <laughs> you know.
0: So different parts of the country, obviously, are affected by different parts of crime for a number of reasons. What are the, the, main, the main types of crime that, that Nottinghamshire faces? And obviously Nottinghamshire is a diverse and different place. The, your former constituency, Sherwood, stretching up towards Mansfield, these, these former coalfield areas, will face perhaps different challenges to, to inner city areas.
1: So people say to me, Paddy, you live in the city, Uh, you live in the inner city, you're focused on city uh, issues. And sure, there are issues around uh, shoplifting, drugs, uh, car crime, burglary, Uh, hate crime's a big issue. Of course, there's a big rural area as well. And, uh, you know, if you get into the parts of Bassett Law, North Bassett Law, Newark and Sherwood. These are very rural areas and uh, having policies that respond to the needs in different areas is really important. And we try hard to do that. And we do that because across the county, we've got a series of neighbourhood inspectors or like kind of Chief Constable won't like me saying this, but the kind of mini Chief Constables who kind of control things in their own area. So what we do in Bassett Law is very different than what we do in the Meadows and Clifton and St Anne's.
0: And what's your relationship like with the the Chief Constable and the police? Because. Th- Police and crime commissioners have existed for for nearly 10 years now. That time seems to have flown by. The Labour Party at the time was opposed to the, the creation of them. I'm not sure if you were personally. But the police must have thought, well, hang on a minute. All of a sudden, you're going to have these elected police chiefs. Where does that leave us? <laughs>
1: Well, let me be honest with you. It was a bit frosty to begin <laughs> with. Uh, you had uh, a group of people who run the police and uh, are used to working with a, a police authority, a kind of committee structure, met every couple of months, every three months. Uh, the notion that there'd be somebody coming along and, in effect, sitting on the shoulder. Uh, of course, some anxieties to begin with. But there's been a lot of changes of chief constables uh, in recent years, and there are more to come. Most chief constables are used to working with police and crime commissioners. They're different. Uh, some of us uh, are a bit eccentric at times. Uh, but by and large, we've worked hard at building a relationship. Uh, I mean, it's clear, isn't it, that my clearest partner, needs to be the chief constable because he delivers. He's the chief executive. He's the operational man. So I've got to work with him. I, I used to say... Uh, to the Chief Constable, you know, Chief, this is a parasitic uh, relationship. And uh, I got a Chief Constable who was educated, who said, no, Paddy, it's not parasitic, it's symbiotic. And uh, provided we both know that we need to work together, uh, it's worked out. And I, I, I have disagreements in private with the Chief Constable. There's only one occasion where I've ever fallen out in public uh, with the Chief Constable, and uh, I didn't want to do that, but I thought it was the right thing to do. And what was that about? So it was an accident, really. Uh, There was a school group who came to force headquarters uh, to have a look around, look at the dogs, uh, look at some of the things, the control room, we do there. We have what's called AVRs, automatic uh, vehicles carrying weapons. Uh, one of them swung in and uh, kind of met the group of kids. Uh, the youngsters were keen to see the weapons uh, that uh, uh, the police were carrying. Uh, unfortunately, one of the weapons was still loaded. It t- discharged. Uh, nobody was hurt, but the the shell bounced up and scratched the the youngster on the face and uh, I mean in fairness the police were on the knees about this Uh, but I just was very clear uh, that the police should go public about it and own up to what was done. Uh, They decided not to do that but of course the police being the police it leaked out fairly quickly and uh, uh, I had to be really quite forceful and so the chief constable you've got to get out there and put the message across because you've been accused of a cover-up.
0: I guess that one episode and that is shocking and thank god that it was such a close shave although potentially that child is traumatised long into the future but I guess that episode demonstrates the need for police and crime commissioners because one of the things that you do just by even having the role is bring an openness to a, to a, to an arm of our public services that that arguably is, has been the least scrutinised.
1: Well, there are spooks and uh, secret to pieces of kit that the uh, uh, the, the police have got. Uh, we have a big operation that's. Uh, uh, Established regionally near the the motorway, I am frequently taken up there to show the to be shown the kit and uh, kind of supposed to ooh and ah about it and say how wonderful it is. And it is wonderful stuff. But actually, what really makes a police is the people who work for them. And uh, we've been working hard to make sure we have a police force that represent represents the community, uh, but those relationships are really important and having open discussions and honest relationships with the uh, the general public I think is dead important.
0: The relationship between the public and police, particularly in the last few years, the Black Lives Matter, with Reclaim These Streets and other elements, uh, has been slightly fractious. Although Nottingham the other week, the policing of the vigil um, in Nottingham was was praised compared to the way that Clapham Common was handled. So Nottingham Police nationally got a lot of credit for that.
1: So you mentioned Black Lives Matters. Uh, we had a big demonstration, 4,000 people here, following the death of George Floyd on the forest. Uh, it was police very professionally. The police were there, but they weren't obtrusive. Uh, it went well, with no problems. Uh, the police were praised in Parliament for the way they did it. And then just more recently, following the Clapham Common Sarah Everard episode, there was a vigil here in Nottingham near one of your heroes, uh, the Brian Clough uh, statue. And uh, uh, people turned up, about 100 people. Police were clear they didn't want people to come because of COVID restrictions. But we knew people would come. The demonstrators were very responsible, uh, well massed, social distanced and uh, dispersed after about 20 minutes. Interestingly enough, the policing of the uh, vigil was done by two female officers. That's all we had there, and this a marvellous photograph. You've seen the photographs of Clapham Common, young women on the ground with police officers handcuffing them, the image here was one of the female officers lighting a candle of her own at the end of the vigil. So it shows, doesn't it, how good and effective policing can be shoon with public sentiment.
0: We saw the scenes in Bristol uh, this and last week. There seems to be periodic outbreaks, particularly on the left, of anti-police sentiment, and you hear this phrase, defund the police. How do you feel about that?
1: Well, I'm always trying to pick people's pockets and put more money into the police. I mean, people say to me, Matt, all the time, we want to see more police officers. We need to see more visible police officers. We have an operation here, which is called Operation Reacher, which is a team of six officers and a sergeant who do proactive neighbourhood policing. They're out and about in the meadows, uh, in Besswood, for example, responding to the needs of local communities. And, uh, you know, I think that really is quite important. we've had a decade of cuts in the public sector, decade of cuts for the police. We're now in a position where we're building back. The phrase we use now is building back better. And we are building back better and we're going to have, better services going into the future than we've had in the past. So I'm really positive, even in the COVID, really positive about the way forward.
0: But do you ever find, when you're dealing with Labour members or activists on the left, that, you, that you're having to defend the police as an institution, not that you're having to defend everything they do as a police and crime commissioner, but that you feel you're having to make the case again?
1: Yeah, I think there is a sentiment, not just on the left, but on the far right as well, uh, that the police are anti-normal people. I mean, I work hard to put positive messages across that people on the left uh, will accept Uh, So, for example, uh, well, you know my history, you know, I used to work with Jack Straw. I was with Jack Straw when Stephen Lawrence was tragically killed. We set up the Macpherson inquiry. That was easy to do. The hard bit was then when Macpherson said the Met was institutionally racist. One of the things about this job is you can do some stuff. And I, uh, as I say, uh, live in Slenton now, but I used to live in the meadows, uh, not the most salubrious parts of Nottingham. We've got good places to live. I, and I've always lived in communities that are mixed and different. And I just thought, I'm going to do something about working with the BAME communities. So we've doubled the number of uh, BAME officers Uh, We're recruiting here faster proportionately than most places in the country. 25% of all our officers are now from a Bain background coming in. uh, With more to do with the black community. Uh, We've done stuff around stop and search. Uh, Stop and search rates have gone up uh, because of knife crime. Uh, But uh, uh, we've got a knife crime team here that's really effective. It works on intelligence. So if you stop by the knife crime team, you've got a 40% of carrying something, either a weapon or a drug. That positive outcome rate is the highest in the country and uh, double the next best, the West Midlands. And those are the kind of things that colleagues who are more left-leaning than I am, you know, that really makes a difference to them, I think. So how how
0: have you effectively changed stop and search then? Is it that police officers can't just do it on a whim? There has to be sign-off first?
1: Well, there's a big discussion. There's been a report out recently from the inspectorate around uh, stop and search. It is still the case uh, that across the country... People are being stopped for carrying small amounts of of drugs. Uh, The Met have just decided uh, this last couple of weeks that they're not going to stop people because they smell of weed. Uh, They've got to have uh, uh, greater concerns than that. Uh, But as I say, we act clearly on intelligence. Uh, We know the people that we want to stop and search, and uh, we've been very effective and black mums, and there's some really powerful black mums here in uh, Nottingham, uh, want their young men protected and provided they think that we're behaving in a sensible and proportionate way, uh, they go along with it. And of course, we spend a lot of time uh, talking to the BAME communities, have a consultative group where we have some uh, difficult discussions at times, uh, but real discussions, discussions that, Leaders to changing policy and making a difference.
0: So, do you feel like you've got the consent of communities that perhaps traditionally have been quite anti stop and search?
1: Uh, I think we're working hard on it. I think there's a long way to go. You know, after decades of anxiety and antipathy, antipathy perhaps some aggression towards the police, you're not going to change things. Overnight, uh, I speak a lot to the black churches. There's a big black churches movement here in uh, uh, Nottingham. Uh, people talk to me at those church meetings about stop and search, and I kind of say, "Well, when did it happen?" Oh, it was 30 years ago, Paddy. And things <laughs> takes time to to work that memory through. But I think things are getting better, and I think actually using the black officers that we've got at the moment who go out and tell their story, uh, how it is for them on the front line. And some of them face some pretty difficult times. Uh, uh, People are more believing of that than me. I was going to say a middle-aged white man, but uh, some people would say an elderly white man.
0: (laughs) I mean, all these things demonstrate how much you can define your own role. Obviously, you have legal limitations you have statutory instruments that you can or or can't use but then the role of the police and crime commissioner i guess a bit like the role of an mp is one for you to define yourself in terms of how you behave in the community what are the things you think that you've done that perhaps other police and crime commissioners not perhaps haven't done but the things you've taken it upon yourself to do
1: well i used to like being an mp because Every day was different. There were lots of things to do. And, and you know, Matt, because you've been in the system. Uh, it's the old John Prescott story, isn't it? John Prescott's Rule of Thirds. A third of Labour MPs are really good. They get on and do the work. A third of Labour MPs, uh, let me put it like this, uh, are a bit lazy and uh, you need to, you don't need to waste your time on them. And a third in the middle are the ones that you need to 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 work uh, uh, quite hard on. So people do make different choices about things. One of the things I was very clear about, because I come from a, a social work background, is you'll know, and uh, uh, people listening to the show will know, there's been a big abuse scandal in children's homes here in Nottingham and Nottinghamshire, and not just physical abuse, but sexual abuse. Uh, and I said we were going to have an independent inquiry. And uh, I went and saw uh, the independent inquiry and persuaded them to come to Nottingham. I wasn't altogether popular uh, with all my colleagues who didn't want to wash dirty linen in public, but it was the right thing to do. And uh, it was a healing process and it gave us all the opportunity to apologise. But since then... We've worked really hard with survivors groups. From the 1st of January this year, we've set up a sexual survivors hub, first in the country, biggest in the country, cost of a million pounds. Uh, I'm not paying all of it. Uh, City and the county council are putting some money in. NHS are putting some money in. But the important thing for me is that we've co-designed that service with the people who use it and actually kind of listening to them and developing a service that meets their needs is uh, uh, a big step forward and just later on this year we're going to build a new SARC a, a sexual assault referral centre that's where you go to when you've been sexually abused either raped or sexually abused mainly women but some men uh, and we'll have a state of art building uh, here in Nottingham, which again has been co-designed uh, with people who use the service. So that sharing of power uh, is important to me and it's important that we deliver on what we said we were going to uh, promise.
0: What about the campaign inside of it? I remember when I worked for you and Sherwood is a massive constituency and getting round roughly 70,000 voters was difficult, even when you had an entire parliamentary term. And you are... The most proactive MP I ever worked for. You were the most campaigning MP I ever worked for. And even you would have struggled to get around an entire constituency with all the hours you put in outside of Westminster being out there on the street. Now you cover the entirety of Nottinghamshire and you're coming up for re-election. How do you cover it all when you're trying to get your face out there?
1: I am trying to get my face out there. So people have uh, got the council tax bills this week. Uh, Again, not entirely popular because uh, the amount of council tax for the uh, uh, police has gone up uh, as it has across the board. But telling people what I'm doing via leaflets... uh, you know, I'm a bit of uh, technologically illiterate. So I'm not in the league that you're in, Matt, of tweeting and Facebooking. But I'm trying, I'm trying, and trying to drag myself into this uh, new digital age. And I do put myself out a bit. I uh, still knock doors, uh, or I used to knock doors when we could. I'm looking forward to Easter uh, when... The better weather comes when the pandemic has come down a bit, when I can get out and talk to people. But actually, you know, the real joy of this job is talking to people. They don't always agree with you, uh, but I like a good discussion. And uh, I think you've been on, on some fairly lively do- doorstep discussions in the past. And uh, I'm not afraid to walk away from the arguments. I mean,
0: I've, I think so often, you were the first MPI I worked for, and I, I learned more from you than I did from anyone else, anywhere in politics, about anything. And uh, I just remember we'd go door knocking in some quite fearsome parts of North Nottinghamshire, with, you know, dogs off dog? the lead and all sorts of things. Dogs like I was petrified. I remember one guy knocking his door, and he said... I said, oh, hi, I'm coming around with your local Labour MP, Paddy Tipping. He said, Paddy Tipping, if I see him, I'll fucking knock him out. And I said, right, OK. And then, I, and then you said, oh, what did he say? And I said, uh, he said he'd, he'd knock you out. And you went straight down his door, down his path, knocked on his door. And within about a minute, you had him laughing and joking. You were absolutely, absolutely fearless.
1: Well, he saw the shape of my nose uh, and he clearly thought I'd been in a fight or two before. But uh, actually, you know, taking people on and uh, having a bit of a joke with them is important. I mean, I think we take politics a bit too seriously at times. I mean, people describe the House of Commons as a pantomime. But there's something in that, isn't
0: there? There is, yeah. Uh, you, You mentioned being technologically illiterate, which is... Funny, given that you were the Minister for the Millennium Bug.
1: Well, that's an interesting... I I, I did say to the Prime Minister at the time, Tony Blair, why have you appointed me? And he said, because you don't know the answers and you'll ask the most stupid of questions and uh, uh, that will take us forward. And, you know, it was a tremendous success. (laughs) Did the world crash? Did aeroplanes fall out of the sky? No, and it was down to me. It's so funny to look back now. But some people were genuinely
0: petrified that because of the way dates had been set on computers, that when the millennium kicked in, everything was going to go to zero and global technology was going to crash. I mean, behind the scenes were were those fears genuine.
1: Uh, people were really concerned about it. So I was sent hawking around the country, talking to big firms uh, about what they were doing, talking to local councils, what they were doing. I went to East Airport and stood in their control room and pretended I was really important. Uh, but, uh, I mean, New Year's Eve uh, was spent in the Cabinet Office uh, watching what was happening. But the nice thing is, you know, we're fairly behind in the calendar, so we could see what was happening in New Zealand and Australia and coming through China and India. And I thought, I'm on a good run here, you know. <laughs> nothing's gone wrong anywhere else. It's going to be all right here in uh, 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 when it hits here in the UK. And we've fine. one or two little glitches, but nothing at all significant. But it seems incredible that... Effectively, it gets to midnight at the last,
0: you know, the 19, the thirty-first of December, nineteen ninety-nine, and the British government and governments around the world weren't sure. You know, it, it shouldn't someone could, surely Bill Gates could have just said, "Oh no, that's not how computers work. Don't worry about it."
1: Well, we, we we did talk to people like Bill Gates. I have to say, I didn't always understand what they were telling me. I mean, I just think the important thing to to recognise, uh, Matt, is uh, you know just before midnight on the thirty first, all the big bods: Tony Blair, Margaret Beckett. Gordon Brown, were queuing to get into the Millennium Centre and the disaster that that was, into the Dome. And there was poor old me in the basement of the Cabinet Office, kind of red-hot uh, receiver in my hand, you know, keeping my fingers crossed, but it was OK. I
0: mean, usually if uh, MPs are near Westminster on New Year's Eve, they're on the terrace of the House of Commons watching the fireworks. So could you not even have a, a, a glass of fizz?
1: I was extremely good at that night. Uh, but when it got after midnight, uh, one was able to celebrate a bit. Uh, and, uh, you know, look, Nottingham's in the Midlands. We don't do fizz up here. It's beer <laughs> up here.
0: Well, I had a lot of beer with you when we used to go out campaigning, which felt like it was every well, Friday, every Saturday.
1: Well, that was the only reason you came, Let's <laughs> be honest about <laughs> it. But it wasn't. <laughs> I... I... <laughs> I was you dedicated. To like the socializing. Like, oh, I'm i socialising. You know, I'm the socialising. You can learn a lot in the podcast. You? you know, people come up and talk to you. And uh, uh, somebody tweeted the other day about the, the Tory candidate at the PCC and they said, oh, we don't know her. She's live locally. But I know Paddy Tipping. I've had a pint in the pub with him. And uh, there's that kind of famous occurrence uh, on uh, Radio Five Live when they were talking about MPs. And, People were talking about John Battle, my old friend, used to drive a, a band-out Cortina, and somebody said, "Oh, no, that's nothing. You know, Paddy shipping, gets on the tram in Up he goes into the centre of town, and he Fs and blinds all the way there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's pretty much my memory of it. I remember, because you were a phenomenal campaigning in MP, and you realised the value of being seen to be out and about and, and being accessible. I remember walking down the high street with you in Hocknell and people would, it was like you were a local celebrity. People would come and talk to you and it was never, I've kind of tried to think about this because obviously this was pre-social media. And when people say, oh, people say to you stuff on social media, they wouldn't say to you in the street. I think, is that necessarily true? But I, I remember, maybe this is just rose tinted spectacles, but in places like Hucknall, and North Nottingham, when you'd walk down the street for a Friday lunchtime to go and get a sandwich or whatever, people seem very friendly. I don't know if that's changed. I don't know if, if social media has changed how people are in the street.
1: Oh, I mean, let me just pick you up on one point, Matt. When you went out on a Friday lunchtime, it wasn't for one sandwich, let's be <laughs> honest. <you know>?
0: There <laughs> were so past- many...
1: Gr- <laughs> Past the king of uh, uh, the Labour Party, uh, I mean, uh, you clearly uh, lockdowns. Then you've got you've lost a little bit of weight because yeah, I understand yeah. you've not been able to do any drinking. But uh, uh, <laughs> but but by and large, people still stop and talk to me on the street. Uh, I mean, I go to a big supermarket fairly regularly. It takes me an age to get round uh, because people just want to chat, you know. But social media has changed things. Uh, People, you know, if somebody wanted to make some money, they would write a treatise, a book about etiquette on social media. I mean, what goes off on social media is just unacceptable. The way that women in particular are threatened with rape and death. It's just just intolerable. And uh, I talked about Bill Gates uh, earlier on. I don't hold him responsible but i do hold big social media companies responsible i think they should do more Uh, i think unless they do more i think they'll face legislation because people aren't going to put up with this into the future talk
0: about your approach to campaigning not every Uh, labour mp not every mp has that uh, approach not every mp sees it as their role to be out there on the knocker explaining things i remember and we, we shouldn't name him, I'm not sure if you remember this, but I remember going for a job interview with, with another MP. And I think I told you I've got a job interview with such and such a person. You said, don't tell him that you're going to get him out there campaigning because he'll he'll shit himself. Yeah. So I didn't, because he didn't like campaigning.
1: Well, I mean, that I said earlier on, uh, M- MPs are different, aren't they? and crime commissioners are different, and uh, people would put themselves in the public eye. There's something to them, isn't there? You know, they. better be careful how I say it. You know, they like to be something in the limelight. They like to hear what people, what they're saying and want people to listen to them. But actually, you know, the thing that I've learned is listening to people is really important uh, all the time, clocking it up, thinking about it, thinking what can I do about that?
0: well, I think I was spoiled working for you because you were so energetic and you were out there all the time and just the value of campaigning and being open and and being accessible as a Member of Parliament. I don't think I ever worked for an MP who had that same drive and that same emphasis. I remember working for one who said, oh, yes, we need to figure out how we get less casework in. And I just thought, what?! What do you mean? And he was saying, you know, well, if someone's been cut off by the gas company, is it really our job to help them? I was like, you're a Labour MP. Even if you don't think it's the role of an MP, you should see that as a potential vote. You know, even be self-interested about it.
1: I thought it was incredible. Well, it is incredible. And, you know, because you helped me in these uh, misdeeds. If anybody had got a petition with names on it and addresses, we'd go and get that petition. And sometimes we knock every door on the petition if it was a small petition. But we certainly write to everybody. But building that link, building that relation, come on, bring it on, bring it through the door. You know, we want want to talk with you. We want to try and sort the problems out. What was incredible,
0: um, well, many of the things, people talk about this red wall a lot, a phrase that I'd never heard until about five years ago, uh, and, and not a phrase that a lot of people are particularly keen on, but people talk about, Mansfield, the epicenter of the minor strike, voting Conservative for the first time in Ashfield, but obviously Sherwood was the epicenter of the minor strike as well. Has a lot of former coalfield, you know, a lot of coalfield areas in there, former pit uh, villages. Sherwood fell to the Conservatives in 2010. Now Sherwood is slightly different in its complexion. It had been Conservative before 1992 when you won it, but that for me was an early warning sign that constituencies that contained places like Blidworth and Calverton, Rainworth. Parts of Mansfield effectively were starting to vote Conservative. I mean, I, I've I thought about Sheffield so much in twenty that uh, Sherwood, sorry, so much in twenty ten. I mean, do you think if you'd have been the candidate in twenty ten, it would have been a Labour hold?
1: Well, the majority was uh, the, the Tories won by was very small indeed, so I was uh, quite disappointed. I think you can overplay the, the personal vote, but I think there is a personal vote. Uh, but uh, the constituency had changed. Uh, as you say, all the pits are gone. All the textile industry had gone. Uh, a lot of uh, new housing has been uh, built in the area. So the demography was changing. And I think... Uh, I mean, if I'm candid with you, uh, some of these places have been, you could use the uh, phrase red wall, some of these places have been uh, Labour strongholds forever, ever in a day. And there was a view around that there were Labour by right. And and that's never been my view. I've always thought you've got to work hard with people and for people and not take it for granted. And uh, I get quite anxious uh, when we've got lab- uh, areas with Labour with a really big majority, because I think being closer to the edge spurs you on, makes you want to do some things.
0: When I reflect on that that period of, of rare Labour government from 1997 to 2010 and think about what Labour did for places like that, and for other so-called left-behind places, places that perhaps still vote Labour, but those places out of the big urban centres. And I think, well, you know, I can list the Labour achievements as I'm sure you can, uh, the minimum wage, tax credits, NHS investment and and education investment in places like Sherwood, big payouts for for coal miners who are suffering from things like COPD, and I know that was a big thing that you were involved in. But even when I was working for you, we'd walk around these places and think, what are we... These places needed such radical action, really, sure. sure. it didn't really feel like we were doing massive, massive, massive amounts of them. And in retrospect, when I think about places like Stoke and places like some of those council estates in your former constituency, did Labour really do anything for those people?
1: Well, I think they did things. So. I mean, you mentioned the minimum wage, you mentioned tax credit, you didn't mention children's centres, which I think was important as well. I mean, I still am involved a bit with the NHS, and uh, it gives me great pride uh, to walk around uh, the Riverside Centre in, uh, in Bulwell, uh, built by Labour, uh, facilities coming out of the hospital into. There much more community services. Uh, We're working quite hard to develop something in Hopeful at the moment. Uh, I hope it's going to happen. I think it's going to happen. So I think those things are important. But one of the things that I think politically we don't talk enough about is looking at areas of disadvantage and investing in them. And uh, one of the consequences of uh, investing in areas of disadvantage is that if things are tight... And they have been tight uh, to fund them. You might need want to take resources from more affluent areas uh, to put into, uh, to level up, is the phrase that we use at the moment. And there's always been a reluctance uh, to do that. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Newstead Abbey Park, uh, well, the poshest area, big houses near uh, the seat of the Byron family, and there's some tremendously rich people. Uh, living there. But when we look back on the casework that we used to get, we used to get a load of casework out of Newstead Abbey Park. Uh, and uh, I once looked at uh, where we were spending money on road repairs, and it was quite interesting. Uh, one of the factors that drove it was where you got the complaints from. So, from the affluent areas of Brushcliffe, for example. Uh, their roads were always in a pretty decent position because people were prepared to shout up. And I think you've got to take that on. I really think you've got to take that on. And I hope one of the lessons of the uh, Labour government uh, under Keir Starmer will be to take that on and say, if we're serious about levelling up, if we want to make life better for people, and we do, and we want to give kids decent life chances, And by God, they've had a tough time over the past 12 months. We've got to be bold enough to say, and we're going to change the way that money is distributed in our society. And that may well mean looking at a wealth tax. And uh, when I used to work with Tony Blair, if I said something like that, he'd fall off his chair, you know. Uh, But it must be right. If you're a socialist, it must be right that you look at what, people have got and compare it with what people haven't
0: got well it's interesting you mentioned Blair and Starmer there because I was going to ask you you were never really a Blairite I mean you weren't old Labour you weren't a Corbynister either and I know politicians don't like being put into pigeonholes I mean you were always very kind to me and I was obviously a kind of young Blairite (laughs) but where were you were
1: you a Brownite were you a Kinnockite? I was, as John Prescott will put it, I was real Labour, all right. Labour through and through, through the rock. Do I criticise other Labour politicians in public? No, I don't. Do I give them a good kick in, in private? Sure, I do. And one of the things that I think Labour needs to learn is to have their arguments in private and uh, uh, to sort it out amongst ourselves. Uh, rather than uh, very public spats that we've had uh, over the past uh, years, which has cost us uh, electorally. I mean, uh, another bugbear on the left of the party is Peter Mandelson. Peter always used to say, parties that are disunited aren't electable, and there's something in that.
0: I don't want to just reminisce about the time that I worked for you, but I remember that period was dominated by Iraq and you were someone who just couldn't bring himself to vote for the war. And obviously I was working for you at the time. I was, and still am, a Blairite at the time, uh, very supportive of that. What was that like to go through as a backbench Labour MP where you're not convinced of the legal, or indeed perhaps the moral case for war, but your loyalty to your party is the thing that they're using to try and get you to vote for it. I mean, I never thought about it at the time, but just reminiscing this morning before we spoke, I thought it was amazing how much Iraq came up in my memories of the time working for you. That must've just been such a difficult position to be in.
1: It was a really tough time, really tough time. And uh, I'd always followed uh, the Labour whip, Reluctantly at times, I've always taken the view that you have your discussions, you come to a position and then you stick by it. And uh, I've never been afraid to tell people when they've got it wrong and remind them afterwards at some length that they got it wrong. Uh, but uh, I had people like the then Defence Secretary, uh, Jeff Hoon, a neighbouring MP, bringing me up, one of my oldest uh, Political friends, John Heppel, uh, the uh, Nottingham East MP was a whip, uh, really heavy on me to toe the line. But ultimately, I just thought, I'm, I can't do this. I'm not going to do this. And uh, there was uh, a very clear re- recollection uh, on the day of the vote uh, being summoned uh, to see the Prime Minister. Uh, and uh, he just kind of said to me, you know, Paddy, we've had our differences, uh, we've always got on well with each other, I've never really asked you to do anything uh, directly, but I want, for, want you to vote for me tonight, and I just said, I'm sorry, I, I, I can't do it. and uh, it was really difficult. The other bit of the conversation <laughs> was he said, uh, oh, Paddy, If it helps at all, the generals tell me that it's all going to be over in three weeks. And I kind of said, Tony, you know, you're a clever man. You know these things. Once you've started, it's hard to put them back together. And are we back properly in Iraq? No, we're not. After all this time, I think there are real lessons there. It's easy to walk into war. Uh, It's hard to build a peace afterwards.
0: But it must be hard to hold your nerve when Labour had been in office so little and that had the potential to bring down the only... In your time as an MP, the only time Labour had been in government and they haven't been in government since. That must have... I mean, I guess that would have worked on some MPs.
1: I think it did. I I was working for Jack Straw at the time and uh, Jack was... It's always been very good to me. uh, And uh, Jack was very clear... If uh, uh, the majority of the Labour Party on the Iraq voted uh, against going uh, into operations, uh, the government would have to resign, and uh, uh, I mean that does weigh heavily on you. But ultimately, there are some things that you think. Hang on a minute. I've thought about this a lot, and of course, the run-up was a long run-up uh, to the declaration of war uh, to the military operation. I I just. Don't- Do this. And, you know, part of the thing that people don't recognize always is you've got your own family. And uh, uh, my wife, uh, uh, Irene, uh, always never really actively involved in politics, getting out knocking doors, uh, but always very clear about political advice. And uh, my two kids, uh, uh, Jenny and Naomi, always had strong views. and uh, were involved in politics and very clear where they stood uh, on, on Iraq and uh, you know you need to listen to them and just talking about those two um, we're just starting leafleting for the PCC election uh, the grandkids will come out and leaflet with me uh, they like it, they, well they like the sweets afterwards rather than the <laughs> leafleting but I can remember the kids saying to me, dad if you force us to put any more bloody leaflets, Labour leaflets through doors, we're going to go and join the young (laughs) Tories. That's the kind of dialogue you want to have at home that keeps it real, you know?
0: But for a while, you did stop putting leaflets through doors because you stood down in 2010. And at that point, had you made the decision that you would never stand for office again, or did you see it as a break at that point?
1: Uh, No, that was the end of it. I and my wife uh, was terminally ill uh, the last uh, year in Parliament had been really difficult uh, with me being in London having to come back to the hospital it was all pretty chaotic uh, uh, Matt and I've not been well myself and I thought uh, this is the time to, to give up and uh, it was a time of uh, real unhappiness I think in, in Parliament so I I was going to give up. Uh, I was going to go travelling with Irene and uh, we never got in the camper van and uh, went abroad because she was uh, too poorly and uh, she died uh, um, about six months after I'd uh, uh, left Parliament. Uh, And then, remarkably, uh, kind of mates of mine came up and said, you know, there's this PCC job coming up. Why don't you have a go Uh, And sometimes you do deaf things and you say, oh, wow, I'll have a little look at it. And actually, as I said earlier on, it's the best thing I've ever done. You know, MP for a long time, big figure on the council for a long time, done a lot in the trade union movement. But this is a great job because I can do some stuff. I can change some things. I can make a difference. I can't change the world overnight. But I know when I get up in the morning and come into work, and you can see I'm in work at the moment, Uh, I I normally wear a tie, but not for you, Matt, today. Uh, uh, You know, I come in and I think, I'm going to do this today. I'm going to do that today. And I've been fantastically lucky and enormously privileged.
0: You mentioned your own health there. You had a heart attack in 2009 but drove yourself to hospital. I mean, that blew my mind when I heard about it at the time. It made me really worry about you. Why, why didn't you call an ambulance?
1: Because I thought I'd got tummy ache. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'd had pains for a long time and I'd been taking indigestion tablets and I thought, I'm going to be all right. And then the penny, I was at the office in Hopewell actually. And uh, on a Saturday morning, and I just thought, oh, I can't go on like this. So I drove to the uh, drop-in centre, who immediately put me on all kinds of machinery. i have been there about 10, 15 minutes. Ambulance bells started ringing, and they said, and the bells are for you, buddy. <laughs> oh, man. And Do you think any of that
0: was to do with the lifestyle of, of being an MP? Do you think you'd have still had a heart attack when you did, had you not been a Member of Parliament?
1: Well, it had been tough, hadn't it? we have been through Iraq. we have been through the expenses scandal. Uh, and uh, things have been pretty tough. I mean, the lifestyle of MPs changed a lot now. Uh, but early days, it was... I've always worked hard in the morning, enjoyed working hard in the morning. But lingering around 2 or 3 o'clock uh, in the early mornings, uh, the next day, is really hard. The temptation is always to go and have a drink and then have another drink, and uh, uh, it's certainly not good for you. And the travel, you know, up and down to London, at least once a week, uh, it really takes its its toll, I think. So, yeah, I think MPs rightly get a lot of criticism, uh, but by and large, across the board, they do it because they want to change things, uh, they want to do some good, and... uh, it puts them at risk in their health. And I know loads and loads of uh, relationships that are broken down because they've not been able to cope with the strain.
0: But now that you're a police and crime commissioner, obviously you're still a politician. You've got more power now than you ever had as an MP. Um, so what's the crucial difference then? Is it that because you live and work in Nottinghamshire, the pressures of the job are more manageable or that it's different pressures that, are, that don't take their toll in the same way?
1: Well, I get to be on bed every night, which is really quite important, I think. Uh, and uh, having that home base, having a group of people around you who are close friends, close colleagues, has made a difference. I mean, up to 12 months ago, uh, when we got locked down, probably would go to London on the train once a week, uh, sometimes twice a week. Uh, and... and that's strenuous. I mean, one of the things, I mean, there's some good things that have come out of the pandemic, which is kind of agile working, the use of digital technology. Uh, I don't think we'll go back to that. Uh, a lot of uh, police uh, staff are working from home. Uh, a lot of the staff here at this office are working from home. I think there's been a good step to change forward. I think the other thing that really has come across for me is that given the nature of this uh, difficulty, police are used to working with crisis, but not a crisis that lasts for 12 months. So it really has been fatiguing. But the notion of partnerships, working together, uh, that we've got to have common plans, common cause, common timetables, uh, I think that's been quite a lesson for us. I know it's a lesson that I'm writing about at the moment.
0: And do you still go for a run every morning?
1: Well, I'm getting a bit old for running, but I do have a walk most morning. So it gets a slower and slower walk, uh, you know. But uh, uh, when when I was ill recently and uh, I had to go to the walking centre, the nurse said to me, Paddy, are you really 71? You don't look at... And I kind of waltzed out of the door, you know. This is the best medicine that the NHS can ever produce, you know?
0: <laughs> you do look amazing on it, though. You've always had a good tan. But that, I guess that's just because you're outdoors all the time.
1: Well, people say it's the amount of alcohol I drink, right?
0: <laughs> so what, I think the last time I saw you was in a pub in Nottingham. I think we met up in the old trip. I mean, that must have been quite a while ago now.
1: Well, We're... the old trip. Yeah, I can't remember it well. I remember who bought the pints. So... <laughs>
0: Oh, I always get around in. I think it would have been me. You were always very generous, though. I I do remember that.
1: Yeah. I'm looking forward to getting back to the trip and uh, getting out and socialising. And uh, I'm just looking forward to next Monday. Uh, One of my daughters just lives around the corner from me. It's a two-minute walk. Just... It's funny how things change, isn't it? thought of going and sitting on their patio with their kids... Having a cup of beer, a couple of beers, well, it's going to be fantastic, isn't it? I can hardly contain myself. (laughs) Well,
0: Paddy, um, enjoy those beers. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much.
1: And thanks for the good chat, as always, uh, Matt. And I do know why I took you on, (laughs) because you're a great guy. (laughs)
0: Well I was going to ask because I remember coming for that job interview and I was absolutely petrified I remember it so I remember what I was wearing I remember it being in that back room in your office in Hucknall And uh, I didn't get that job but you basically offered me a part-time job in a different role I was just so grateful so grateful that you'd taken a chance on a sort of young eager (laughs) If sort of slightly gaff prone
1: idiot and that's why we appointed you. We need a new... I, I upset the office here the other day when I said, you know, I like this person because he caused some trouble. And we need people who are a bit gaff-prone, bit of an idiot, prepared to have a go. It's the only way you're going to change things, isn't it?
0: I'd never thought of it like that, but I'm, I'm glad that I was um, brought some positives. But uh, Paddy, hopefully I'll see you soon for a beer. At the trip. Cheers. Well, there you go, Paddy Tipping. It was an absolute treat catching up with Paddy. And you can imagine, I'm sure now listening to that, why he was so great to work for. A real fatherly figure. Um, very kind, very generous, very understanding, very encouraging. Um, and you know, I look back now and think, oh God, I must have come across like an absolute bumbling fool in this very... He's very kind politician took me under his wing, taught me a lot and uh, really fed that interest because had I worked for a different MP, I might have been put off. I might have thought, oh, no, how depressing. But I was so lucky to have met an MP early in my life who knew how to encourage me and then shared just my love of everything political um, and really nurtured that. And uh, I'm immensely grateful for Paddy for for my first experience really of of politics of of working for an elected politician was, was him. And I just think that, that, that fueled my interest and my love of politics even more. So I've always uh, owed a great deal to Paddy just for my love of politics and my love of the, the essence of it. You know, he was just great in the town hall meetings and he was great with the public and he just loved it. He was so jolly about it, which, um, a lot of MPs, you know, some MPs have, but he was particularly jolly and you know? he has retained that and he's a real asset to uh, to Nottinghamshire political life. So I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. Obviously, it's was slightly different for me catching up with an old boss and now an old friend, um, but what a treat. Uh, thank you for downloading this. Uh, email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. There's a link in the blurb to register to vote by post uh, wherever you live in the UK, um, just in case you don't think you're going to feel safe or comfortable going into a polling station in May and uh, leave a review on iTunes or wherever you find this, whatever platform you listen to this on, usually they let you rate it. So do do that and um, tell everyone about it. And I'll see you next time. Ta-ra.